Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Micah. Micah is located between Jonah and Nahum. And if you don't know where that is, just listen carefully. And hopefully you will receive the message. One of the benefits of having your Bible on an electronic device is it's pretty easy to find it, isn't it, when you have it there? More easy than it is if you do it the old way. All right, Micah, chapter 6, beginning with verse 6 and reading through verse 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Here is an age-old question. What does God desire from us? Stated another way, what does God want from us? What does He want of us? Does He desire religious activity from us? Ritualistic religion from us? To the contrary, this passage is very clear. The Lord desires that we have a heart like His. In this passage of Scripture, these words were first recorded in the 8th century B.C. by this prophet Micah. It was in the last third of that century. He was a prophet primarily to the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of the people of God. And he was addressing a people who had grown very lax in their ethics. This time in the history of Judah, the rich were oppressing the poor. There were merchants, most of whom were cheating their customers. There was corruption among the religious and judicial leaders alike. The nation was in disrepair, ethically and morally. And so this word comes, this question is raised, what does the Lord require of you? The response of the people, which is given in verses 6 and 7, as to their inquiry and their insight, or lack thereof, of what God desires of them, gives us insight into the fact these people felt like God owed them. Now let's stop just a moment. Does God owe you anything? Or does He owe me anything? He owes us absolutely nothing. We owe Him everything. So let's look at the questions which these people to whom Micah ministered, let's see what they had to say. Verse 6 says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? That seems very right in its perspective when you hear it until you begin to see some of the things that they say. Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts. They were even suggesting they would sacrifice their own children in order to be right with the Lord. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Well, we know what Isaiah, who was a contemporary of Micah's, said about these same people. 
He said, and Jesus repeats it in Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There was an absence of heart relationship on the part of these people. And they had an attitude, really, toward the Lord, as I've mentioned already, suggesting that they expected Him to step up on their behalf. Well, look what is said in response to these questions by the man of God. He has told you, O man, what is good. Now, we know that only God is good. That's what Jesus said to a young man who came to him, inquiring of him, What must I do to inherit eternal life, good teacher? Jesus says, only God is good. Now, Jesus was quite aware of the fact that he was God in the flesh. Make no mistake about them that, but he was testing this young man. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 3, from which we read earlier, that there is no one who is good. Nobody is good in and of himself or herself. We know that's what the Bible teaches. But this is what Micah says. He has told you, O man, what is good. We know that God is good. Jesus Christ is good. If you know Jesus, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have given Him control of your life, asking Him to forgive you of your sin. What has happened is, He has come to live in your life, the Bible says. But as many as received Him, speaking of Jesus, to them He became gave the right to become children of God. So, we open the door of our hearts, as it were, to the Lord Jesus, and He comes in. And He is one who is inherently good. He is God, remember, become man. And therefore, what He is becomes what we can become. It was true in the Old Testament era. It is true in this era. And it's the only way that we can meet the requirements which are given in this passage of Scripture. To have a heart like His. As we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, this is what the result is. Well, let's think about something that I read recently. As I was thinking of this passage of Scripture, it came to my mind. It's written about one of the preachers during the reign, the golden age in France of Louis XIV. I was surprised to discover that Louis XIV sat on the throne of France for 68 years. I thought, how old was he when he took the throne? Well, he was the child king. He was known as Louis the Great. And it was a tremendous era in the history of France. Everything was just almost perfect. There were several great preachers who preached in the chapel which was the king's chapel. And prior to the man I'm going to mention, there were three great preachers who preached in succession. Bossuet, who was known as a great orator, but he knew how to tiptoe around the delicate issues, especially as they related to the conduct of the king. And so he was what you might consider a politically correct oratorical preacher. Then his successor... Bouteloua, this man was a man who was incredibly articulate in terms of dealing with the details as he drilled down deeply in analyzing the text of Scripture. And he was very impressive in the way in which he could deliver truth to those who heard him. He was admired by the king, as was his predecessor. Then came a man who has influenced my life, 
Francois Fenelon. Some of you perhaps have read Fenelon. Some of his works include Let Go, which I highly recommend, and Christian Perfection. He was a mystic, as it were. He understood the importance of having an intimate relationship, a personal relationship with God. And he taught about that very clearly. He was a great mystical preacher of the Word of God. But then there was a man who succeeded him. His name was Jean-Baptiste Massillon. Massillon was not as eloquent as Bossuet. He was not as analytical as Boudelot. Nor was he one who was as mystical as Fenelon. But he excelled them all. When he preached, he preached as if God were speaking through him. And listen to what King Louis XIV wrote him in a note of appreciation. He said, I have heard in this chapel many great orators, and you have been much pleased with them. But whenever I have heard you, I have been displeased with myself. In other words, the message that this man, Massillon, brought was a penetrating message. He did not single the king out. He simply preached the Word of God. And God found good soil in King Louis' heart as it was shared through this man. When the end of the magnificent reign of Louis XIV came, Massillon was given the great privilege to give the funeral oration. It was in Paris, at Notre Dame Cathedral. The cathedral was filled to overflowing. There were many Frenchmen there, of course. All the nobles were there. But in addition to that, there were dignitaries from all over Europe who had come to memorialize this great leader in Europe. When Massillon stood to deliver the funeral oration, he had chosen for his text Ecclesiastes 116. Listen to the words of Solomon, which were the words of God, as it were. As he read that passage, Solomon said, I, in my heart, have said, I have become great. And I have advanced in wisdom beyond all those before me. The crowd was anxious to hear how this man, Massillon, was going to apply the text. I would like to read his introductory statement. God only is great, my brothers. And above all, in those last moments, when He presides at the death of the kings of the earth, the more their glory and their power have shone forth, the more in vanishing. Then do they render homage to His supreme greatness. God then appears all that He is, and man is no more at all that which he believed himself to be. Death is the great equalizer, isn't it? And we know from God's perspective that He reserves the right to be known as great for Himself. And that is part of what was behind, I believe, this statement that is made by Micah to Judah when he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. He has told you that He is good, He is great, but that 
by His grace, you can become good as well due to the presence of Jesus Christ living in your life by the Spirit of God. Now, let's look at that which the Lord requires of us. Pay careful attention. This is for us today, just as surely as it was in the 8th century B.C. for those in Judah. The first thing that's required of us, in verse 8 says, we are to do justice. The word justice literally in the Hebrew language simply means verdict. It came to mean a verdict which was due to an individual based upon the character of that individual. And when we think about this, this is what justice should be. The Bible says in Isaiah 30:18 about our God. The Bible says the Lord is a God of justice. Our God is a just God. Jesus himself was certainly just. In speaking about Jesus, he is described as the just one or the righteous one by John in 1 John chapter 2. God's nature is that of justice. And the final authority for our knowing what constitutes justice is found in the Word of God in the Bible. Do we want to do justice? We must then look into His Word and discern by the help of the Spirit of God what amounts to the justice of God. We are to be men and women who are just if we are like the Lord and do what He requires of us. In Amos chapter 5, verse 24, the prophet Amos said, Let justice roll down. He speaks on behalf of God. God is intent upon justice, especially in human relationships, in what we call ethics, the way we treat one another. Would you please hold your place here and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy? And we're going to look at chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in our Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 17. As we move from the understanding that God is a God of justice, He's one who renders the right verdict in every case on any matter that has to do with human relationships. Look at verse 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. You shall not show partiality in judgment, God says. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. We are to have that mentality toward others. The mentality of having a heart of justice. In Leviticus 19.15, I'll never forget when this first occurred to me. I cannot tell you how long ago it was, several years ago, as I was reading through the book of Leviticus. And maybe you're like me. Sometimes you wonder, is there anything I can really get out of Leviticus that applies to me? Well, this certainly applied to me and still does to all of us. In Leviticus 19, verse 15, this is what the Word of God says. Do not pervert justice. And do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. 
but show fairness to your neighbor. Isn't that interesting? No partiality to the poor. No favoritism to the great. We are to treat all people alike, regardless of their standing in the community. Regardless of whether they're rich or poor, educated or illiterate. We are to treat all people the same, regardless of race. We are to treat them as people created in the image of God. And if we are relating to people within the body of Christ... When we relate to each other, please remember that when we relate to each other, we are relating to one in whom Jesus Christ dwells. And there is a sense that we minister to Jesus when we minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to treat them as if they were Christ themselves, because He lives in them. So, there is no room for prejudice in the body of Christ. There is no room for playing favorites. Now, the reality is, all of us have at times blown that concept. We have disobeyed Leviticus 19.15 along the way. But what the Lord desires of us, in fact, what He requires of us, is that we have this kind of mentality toward Him. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, the Bible says, Acquitting the guilty... And condemning the innocent, both of them are detestable to the Lord. So if I set someone free who is guilty, that is detestable and unacceptable. And the same is true for you. If you condemn someone who is innocent, that in itself is detestable as well. That was going on in the days of Micah in Judah. People were treated differently based on their standing in the community. And that is abominable, detestable to the Lord. In Proverbs 20, verse 10, this is what Solomon wrote. Differing weights, differing measures, the Lord detests both of them. Now, do you remember what I mentioned at the outset? In Judah in the days of Micah, merchants were cheating their customers. And one of the ways they would do it, they would graduate their weights, they would fix their weights and use different measures for different people. Maybe they would suggest by the way they weighted things that people who had more money, they would charge them more. Or maybe even charge poorer people more to keep them under their thumbs. We don't know for sure about that, but what we do know is that it's wrong to treat the people differently when we do business with them. We're to be honest with people. We're to be forthright with people. We're to treat them fairly. That is part of what it means to do justice. In the book of 1 John chapter 1, the Bible says this. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our God is a just God. We're to do justice like He does justice. The next thing, however, seems in a sense on the surface of things to contradict this idea of doing justice. We're to do justice and to love kindness. The word translated love kindness is a word... Hesed is the word. It's the rough equivalent, yet not quite the 
exact equivalent of the New Testament word agape, which means selfless love. Here's the best way I know to define what this word means. It's love laced with mercy. It's a love that shows justice for sure, but it goes a step further and interjects mercy into the relationship. And if we think about Jesus, Jesus was merciful, was He not? We see frequently as we've moved into the book of Mark, we're going to see more of this as we read through the book of Mark as a congregation in our daily readings. What we will see, for instance, in the 10th chapter of Mark, there's a man by the name of Bartimaeus. He's a blind man. He hears that Jesus is walking along the thoroughfare into Jericho. And when he hears, he cries out, Have mercy on me, son of David. He had heard of the merciful nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he cried out for that mercy. This idea of loving kindness is the idea of love laced with mercy. Now, let's think about this a moment. God is just. The Bible says that He will by no means clear the guilty of their sin. He does not wink at sin. He does not turn His head when sin is taking place. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. He is one who cannot countenance sin. We know that about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that about God the Father. We know that about God the Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is strongly opposed to sin because sin dishonors God and it's against Him. Against you and you only have I sinned, is what David said in the 51st Psalm when he was describing his own sin. So our sin's against the Lord, but it's against other people who are made in the image of God as well. When we do not show kindness to people, we are people who are unlike God in the sense that God also is a merciful God. So how do these two things work together? The idea of God's justice and the idea of God's mercy. Are they incompatible? They seem on the surface not to fit together. Well, let's look again at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And begin with verse 21. I'm going to make a few comments as I read through this passage while focusing primarily upon the last verse of this passage, verse 26. Romans 3:21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets. So the righteousness of God is something that does not come as a result of the law. The law is important, of course. If you'll just glance up the page at verses 19 and 20, we'll see the purpose of God's law. But we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That means be made right in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what purpose does the law of God play in our lives? It's to let us know that we're sinners. And not only to let us know that we are sinners, but to know there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 6, 
He said, all your righteous acts are like filthy rags in the sight of God. The best I can do to make myself right with God is abhorrent to God. It stinks to God. Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So where does this righteousness come? In Romans 1.18, the Bible says, The just, or the righteous, depending upon your translation, the just and righteous are made just by faith. That is the verse which Martin Luther, who was the great Augustinian monk, he had devoted his life to follow the way of St. Augustine. And he was a student of God's Word. He knew the language of the New Testament, the language of the Old Testament. It was his assignment to teach aspiring priests the books of the Bible. The book of Romans was his assignment. And as he was studying this passage in Romans, the entire book, he came to Romans 1.18. The just shall live, or the righteous shall live, by faith. And he was radically changed. Because he had thought and been taught all of his life, and he himself had done the same, teaching people that you're saved by works, not by the grace of God. You're saved by works, not by the gift of God. So, how are we made right with God? Through faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting in Him. And then the last statement of verse 22 speaks very specifically to Micah 6, 8. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter what your station is in life. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how many services you have attended. It doesn't matter how much money you have given. It has to do with what God has done for you and how you have recognized that you are a sinner in need of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Verse 24, being justified, that is made right with God as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The medium of our salvation is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and how He gave His life to redeem us, that is, to set us free from our sin. In speaking of Jesus, he goes on to say that in Him, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Propitiation, what does that mean? Well, let me make a stab at it. The word propitiation is a word which suggests that Jesus Christ When He was on the cross, when Jesus was dying for our sins on the cross, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. And in so doing, God the Father poured all of His wrath out upon the Lord Jesus Christ to appease His own anger for sin. To be one who would not violate His nature His nature of being a just God was not violated because of the sacrifice He and the Son made for us. The last part of verse 25. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, that is, God the Father's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. 
He was waiting for this moment when Christ would become sin, dying on the cross for us. He was reserving His judgment. And then the dam burst when Jesus was on the cross. And the penalty for our sin was paid when the wrath of God fell fully upon Jesus Christ. In verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness, God's, at the present time. Now look carefully at this. That He might be just. Remember, the Lord is a just God. That He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We're to do justice. God is just. And we are to love kindness or mercy. God is also merciful. He does not contradict His nature. He retains His holiness, His justice. When He gives Jesus Christ to take our place in taking the wrath of God upon Himself so that He in His mercy can show us what we all need. And that is grace. That we could be made right with the Lord. And this is true of us. As followers of Jesus, we are to love mercy. Are you a person of mercy? Well, we know what Jesus said, that he who is forgiven much, loves much. By implication, if you don't think you need forgiveness, or you don't think you've done that many bad things, then you're a person who really does not fully appreciate the grace of God and the mercy of God. We know what grace is. It's getting what we don't deserve. You know what mercy is, don't you? Not getting what we do deserve. We deserve judgment. But Jesus took that upon Himself. And we being the recipients of that great mercy. I think of what Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32. He says, Be kind and compassionate forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Have you ever stopped to think about how much God has forgiven you in Christ? Have you stopped to think about how many times, just in recent days, that you've had thoughts that were unacceptable to God? you said things that were wrong. You have done things which were sinful. And you've cried out for mercy. You've confessed your sins. And He has been faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to purge you, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Not just some, but all unrighteousness. Don't you think that the right response of a person who understands how much sin he and she or he or she has committed the right response to people who have offended us is to forgive them, isn't it? And remember when Jesus was approached by His apostles and they said, How often should we sin, Lord? And Jesus said, Seventy times seven. An infinite number of times is what He was saying. Because He has forgiven us of all of our sin. We are to do justice. For sure. We're to treat each other 
with justice. But we are also to love mercy and love kindness. I think of the great parable of the prodigal son. Perhaps some of you are lovers of art. I don't necessarily think I could be in that category. That would be a sin if I were to say it is. But I do appreciate great art, what little I've looked at. And there are many portraits of the return of the prodigal son. But one that really stands out to me is by a man by the name Carvigio. He was from Milan. And he painted in the late 16th and early 17th century. And we think about the story of the prodigal son. He demanded his part of the inheritance. Now, typically, when is an inheritance given? After someone has died, right? So, his father's still alive and he goes to him and he demands his inheritance. He would only get a third because he was the second born. His elder brother would get two-thirds. He demands his inheritance. The father amazingly gives him his inheritance. He takes the inheritance. He goes off into a far country and he spends it all on what is called riotous living. He spends it on prostitutes and drink and partying. And the next thing he knows, he wakes up in a pig pen where he is assigned the responsibility of feeding pigs. And he even asks for permission to eat the husks the food that was given to the pigs. And the Scripture doesn't say he was granted that. We don't even know if he was even permitted to eat the pig food. And then the Bible says he comes to his senses. And he begins to reflect upon the servants in his father's household and how well his father treated the hired men. And then he says, as he contemplates that, he said, I have sinned against God And I'm going to tell my father when I see him again, I've sinned against you. Please let me be a manservant in your household. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. And so he begins his journey back home. And on the way there, the Scripture says, the father sees him from a distance. And obviously the father was looking for the return. And the father in the story Some have called the father the prodigal father and said, really a better name for this parable is the prodigal father. The father sees him from a high vantage point, obviously. He comes down probably from the parapet around his estate. He comes down and he begins to run toward his son. This was unthinkable for a man of his standing in the community, a man his age. And he probably would have taken his long flowing robe tucked it under what we would call a belt as he ran to see his son. And when he gets there, he embraces his son. And he immediately is expressing gratitude at the return. And he says to his servant, who evidently has followed him in his run to the son, and he says, go get a robe for my son. His clothes are tattered. And in this portrait of the prodigal son. It stands out among all to me when I see it. The boy is in very poor clothing. And it appears, from my vantage point, when I look at it, the boy's hair had become very thin. Not what we would call male pattern baldness. It had become very thin, which would suggest malnutrition. 
And he's bowing at the feet of his father. And the father is embracing him. Loving him. So glad to have him back. Bring him a robe. Give him the ring. The signet ring as it were. Give him sandals for his feet. He was barefooted. Give him sandals for his feet. And he turns to the man who's in charge of the livestock. And he said, go get the fattened calf. And it was customary in that day. People of means would keep a fattened calf for a moment of spontaneous celebration. And he said, we must celebrate because my son was lost and now he is found. My son was dead and now he is alive. What a picture of the mercy of God. That's our story. Some of you have not really led a life of prodigality. You may have come to Christ as a child. You've walked the straight and narrow. And you haven't had that kind of moment when you really rebelled against God. And I'm not suggesting you go and have one so you can appreciate the love of God, right? No. Some of you have. There might even be a person present this morning who is in a state of prodigality. You've run away from the Lord. You've left the Lord. You've rejected the Lord. He's calling you to His mercy today. What are we to do? We're to do justice. Correct? We're to treat everyone equally. And with the ways of Christ, we are to treat them. And secondly... We're to love kindness. We're to be merciful to them. Now, here's the last one. If you go back to Micah, chapter 6, 8, it says, and to walk humbly with your God. As I thought about that, the question was raised in my own mind, is there any other way to walk with God? Can I walk any way except humbly with God? There is no way I can walk alongside God unless it is in humility. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He may exalt you. He who exalts himself will be humbled, is what Jesus says. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what He says in the book of Matthew chapter 23. We are to be men and women who recognize that humility is absolutely necessary. And look, when we understand what we've seen already about the justice of God and the mercy of God and how those two things were wedded in the work of Christ on the cross, does that not have a positive effect upon you to make you want to humble yourself before God? I was thinking as prepared this message of examples in the Bible of people who walked with God. And the first person which came to mind was Enoch in the fifth chapter of Genesis. And there are only about three or four verses allotted to Enoch. The Bible says that he began to walk with God at the age of 65. Well, that should be encouraging to you, many of you, because you're 65 or thereabouts. It's never too late to begin your walk with God. He began at the age of 65, and he had three centuries. He, he lasted till the age of 365. Now, some of you may live that long. And I, God give you all the grace you need to live that long. But then the Bible says, and he was no more. 
And that would suggest that the Lord just took him on to heaven. It made me begin to contemplate that. And I'm going to spiritualize the text a little bit. It's dangerous to do that, but I think there is an application at least. And he was no more. This is what I will suggest to you. And I base this on what John the Baptist says to his disciples when they were griping about the fact that John the Baptist was giving too many credits to Jesus and people were going away from John the Baptist to follow Jesus. And then remember what he said to his disciples. John the Baptist said this to them. He said, I must decrease, but he must increase. He must increase. Speaking of Jesus, I must decrease. And this is what I believe. If we walk humbly with our God, we don't disappear in the sense of being non-existent, obviously, but we do become secondary to the person of Jesus. Are you that kind of person? Are you walking humbly with your God so that people will see Christ in you and you will be an agent of Christ's love to those around you? What does the Lord require of us? He requires that we do what? We do justice. And we love what? We love kindness or mercy. And how do we walk? We walk humbly with our God. That's what God wants us to understand. That's the message of the Bible. This is impossible. If you try to do this on your own, you'll never make it. This is why the Lord does not tell us to be good. He says these things are good. And they're possible. Why? Because the one who is perfect has come to live in us. And we have become partakers of His nature, is what the Bible says. And we can trust Him. And He will reproduce His character in and through us. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Christ is calling you today to this life. And it's a wonderful life to be used by Him to minister to others. To renounce yourself. Give control of your life to Him. And follow Him. If you sense that the Father is waiting for you to come to Him. Just as... The father in the prodigal son's story was waiting for the prodigal to come home. This is the heart of our God. He longs for your return. Won't you come? Lord, we ask that you would help us to live close to you all the time. We ask you, Lord, to reproduce your nature in us. That we would be people of justice and mercy and humble people for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.